made up my mind as I was getting ready to come up here that I was going to read the entire passage before we prayed. That is so that I don't start making comments on it before the, the moment, because it's, it's easy to get into it. But I want to read the entirety of our section tonight. We are in Isaiah chapter 40. Last week, we were thinking about the introduction to that section. It has as its main point in the center of it this great statement. It speaks about human beings and their entire culture, everything about what our lives are about. And he says this, it's all grass. Human beings are all grass. They're dying. Their glory, that is the things that they glory in, that's all fading. And then in verse 8, he says this, the grass withers. That speaks about everything that's going on in this earth. The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That is a very crucial statement to the entire section of this part of Isaiah that goes all the way to chapter 66. This introduction, the word of our God stands forever. And then in verse 12, he picks up and after the introduction and begins to speak to the nation. Right, he is, he is in, in type, picked out the entire nation, stood them in front of him and wants to speak to them. And here's, he begins to question them. Now, what he has to say here is not new information. Because the word of our God stands forever, and they already had that word. And so these rhetorical questions remind, they don't instruct on what's going on. So let's go and begin reading in verse 12, a tremendous chapter. If you, for worship, it is a wonderful chapter to know. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span, that's the span of his hand, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him. With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. This is the only place I want to make some comment because you need to just kind of get this. Islands and coastlands in the book of Isaiah, the rest of the way through here, always refer to the entirety of the world. All that's beyond Israel. They would look out across the Mediterranean Sea and they would see islands out there. And they talk about all that's out there, the coastlands are the, are the vastness of the, the population of the earth, which they couldn't get to. They don't know about. But it's out there. So that's what he's talking about. He says, he lifts up the islands like fine does. He's talking about the entirety of the world there. And even Lebanon is not enough to burn, and it's beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. 
He was too impoverished for such an offering. Selects a tree that does not rot. He selects out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Again, he's addressing Israel here. And they do know. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces, excuse me, <clears throat> it is he who reduces to nothing, rulers to nothing, who makes the judges <clears throat> of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. And he merely blows on them. And they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Now he moves from speaking about God to God himself speaking. To whom then will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Remember what the word holy means. Completely different. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads them leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his power and the strength of his or strength the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, Yet those who wait for the Lord, this is an important passage for the entirety of the poem, that those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Well, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> While we come before you, we would bow in our hearts before you. We would want to, we would ask tonight that we would see our God. You said, behold your God. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of that word. And we're asking you as we think on it tonight together to unveil to us the greatness of who you are and draw from us that response of faith that will glorify your name in our experiences. So so meet us tonight by your Spirit that Jesus Christ might be lifted up, that the purpose of God might be taken forward because we've met together in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a tremendous passage. Isaiah has introduced a concept. And that concept is this, that there are two ways you can you can organize your life. You can organize it around 
the philosophies of mankind and the hopes of mankind, or you can organize it around God and His Word. And he takes it particularly to the Word. And he says, if you do it around one, you're going to find disaster because all flesh is grass. Everything that is working itself out on this earth that is apart from God, every hope that is presented to the human race is is failing. It's disappearing. But there is something which can become the anchor, he says, and that's the Word of God. Now, after saying that, the Word of God stands forever. He addresses the people of Israel. We can look at this in two different ways. I want to say again, as we did last week, when we talk about the recipient here, we can think of the recipients as being the people that Isaiah spoke to directly, like I'm talking to you, living people that were alive in Isaiah's day. They were in a difficult situation because the promise uh, that had been created by Hezekiah's good rule had disappeared when Manasseh takes over. And there were those that had followed Hezekiah and were ready to serve God, and then they see a man come in and virtually take it all back down. And their way of life becomes goes from being the way the nation lives to a persecuted group of people inside of the very nation which belonged to God. The, the, the message is directed to them. They need to have confidence in that day. It's also going to be directed, we can think of it also, with respect to a group of people 150 years later. Because of what Manasseh did, the promise of God from way back in Deuteronomy that God would take them out of the land was going to be fulfilled. And it was fulfilled about a hundred years after Isaiah lived. And they went in, those, those people went to Babylon, and there in Babylon, it looked like everything of God's purpose had been defeated, and God comes to them through the same message and says this, it isn't defeated. Why isn't it defeated? Because the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And He has a purpose. Now, at the very beginning of our, our session together, we, we thought about this. If you're going to understand this book, you have to understand the God that, that Isaiah served. And the God that Isaiah served is a God with a plan. He had a plan before the foundation of the earth, and he is taking that plan to its completion. And not only has he done that, taking this plan from there to there, he's going to take it to that place. He has chosen to tell men what he's doing. He has chosen to reveal. That's what we call the Word of God. It is the revelation of what He plans to do. It's been an unfolding revelation as it goes through. And as it unfolds, it tells what a next step and the next step and the next step. Some of those steps are described from the very beginning. Some of them aren't described till later on. But He tells you, He keeps telling you what He's going to do. And then He does it. So that every person in this room tonight can know that there is a living God seated on throne who can tell you the beginning from the end. And that, that's a great deal. The, the picture, that was his comprehension of God. Israel, the people of Israel, were the people of God. And they had peculiarly received that revelation. They knew. And so when he says in this, in this chapter, when he starts saying, Have you not known? He's not saying, did you just not understand things? He said, didn't you listen to what was said? 
You've had the book in your hand all these years. You have the information right there. Don't you know? All the questions he asks here are in light of what God has said in his word and what those people had in their hand, or let's say available to them, whether they were listening to it or not. And so this chapter is a chapter to remind the people of where they're going. Now, the aim of the chapter is to tell them a principle. We're going to go to the end right at the beginning so that we can know where we're headed is to bring them to this point. There are two kinds of people with respect to this word. Some are going to listen to it and go, hmm, and ignore it. It's available to the whole human race. And then there are those who are going to listen to it. And he, he uses this phrase, which we'll talk about later on. They're going to wait on the Lord. And they will have two different kinds of ends because of the two different kinds of response. Well, let's go through the passage and look at it. All right. When asked the question, who has measured the waters in the hall of his hands? He is describing the God that they knew because of the revelation. We have it also. It's in the revelation they have, the same revelation we have. Go read through the early parts of the books of the book of Genesis about a God who spoke and the worlds were created. About a situation was stretched forth and expanded into, into reality. A God who is ruling over the whole thing who brings it all to pass. He doesn't have to make it piece by piece. He can speak, and there it is. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, he's getting very picturesque here, but think about it for just a moment. What can you hold? And this is part of the contrast here. What can you hold? The hollow of your hand is if you make a little cup there. All right? How much water can you hold in the cup of your hand? Now, again, he's not trying to tell us details about God. He's trying to explain to us how great he is and how small we are. And he says this. He has he has measured the waters. The waters in the book of Isaiah also. Again, this is another one of those consistent things. The waters always speak about the oceans. You want to put it there, go out to the beach and look across it. Who has taken and scooped up the Atlantic Ocean in his hand? To measure, but it's not that the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, the Atlantic, all the rest of them. All right, how many there are out there? And I won't try to go through my geography here, but he's got it all. He takes it all. He says that that's, he can measure it right there. And, and then what's he say? Now again, this is not. It, it doesn't fit, but it just to give the picture. And he can measure the stars with a span of his hand. Now again, this is not to say he has a hand. It's just to say he's great. I can span nine and a half inches. I happen to know that because I use it all the time as a, okay, yeah, it's about, it's about that. I can t- measure things. Nine and a half inches. The numbers of the universe are billions of light years. Now, he's just trying to impress us. But see, this was something these people already knew. That the God who made it isn't restricted by it. He's not inside of it. He is outside of it. He's outside the creation. The first thing he wants to remind them of is the power. He's calculated, it's his uh, verse, or middle of that verse, and calculated the dust of the earth by measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. How much can you put on a scale? What's the biggest scale you have ever used? 
Could you get Paris Mountain on it? Paris Hill? Right? The bump over here? Whether you're going to call that the mountain or a hill, it fits one or the other. You can't move it. You can't touch. You can't get it onto a scale. You don't have a scale big enough for it. And he says he takes the mountains and he puts them all there on a scale. He's trying to impress us with something because he's talking about things that people did every day. Those scales were there every day. They had to go go to... You go to buy something, you, you had to pay money, and it was put on a scale to find out whether or not you had paid the right amount. Who can do that? The power of God. So that's the first thing he wants them to note. In verse uh, 13, he changes the, the direction. He doesn't finish up and, and try to get too far along on that, but he says, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Right? Who's directed him? Or as his counselor has informed him. Is there anyone in this room that didn't learn by going to school somehow, even if that school was in your house? All right. There's nobody here that was born with intuitive knowledge. There's nobody in this room that didn't have to have instruction, that didn't have to have help, that didn't have to have someone come alongside of them and instruct them about the way things are. And he speaks about God. He's trying to put the distance between ourselves and God here. He's doing that for a particular purpose. And he says this, nobody ever had to instruct. God did not need it. He knew intuitively from all eternity. What a God. And that's why he's got who, who instructed him in things, who instructed him in righteousness. And he says in verse 15, we've got to go very quickly through this. We get bogged down here, but... Um, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Now, the picture there is a guy, you go have to go to the well to get water. You bring it home. All right? That's a pain to have to do. I don't think, can you imagine every day going and getting the water supply for your house at a well downtown anyway, but not downtown. But anyway, you have to go and get it, and you bring it back. And you would set that bucket down. He said, that's a picture he's got here of setting that bucket down. And when you set a bucket down, you slop, Right? And he says, out of that bucket comes a droplet. All right? He goes, Shoop. Now, imagine how much time you're going to be concerned about that drop that comes out of the bucket. Now, if you drop, if you, if you spilled the bucket, you'd be concerned because then you have to go back and do it again. But it, it's something, it's, it's an inconsequ- inconsequential action that happens. A drop falls out of a bucket. If I had a bucket of water, you can get one of those, you know, five-gallon buckets up here. And I take an eyedropper, and I drop one, bu- one drop of, of water into that. There's nobody in this room that can measure that to figure out whether, you know, how many drops he put in. Yeah, right. Now, it's possible to do with the right equipment, but nobody here has it. It would be completely, you wouldn't know. Turn around, and I'm going to... How many drops did I put in? It's, it's inconsequential. It's a drop in the bucket. What else does he say? Let's go on to the next, the next page. He says that, behold, it's like, or it's like dust on a scale. The, the nations are regarded like dust on a scale. That, the scale is going to weigh big things. You know, you got this thing out here. You got a shekel, and it's, it's a pretty big piece of chunk that you put over here, and dust floats onto it. Now, in that world, dust would always be floating onto it, as it was. A, it's a dry, dusty world. Dust gets on it. You don't care. It's not going to throw that shekel off. Nobody can. You know how you're going to get rid of it? <sighs> okay, that's gone. 
You ever do that when you're, you know, you're at work and you get some dust on you? <laughs> Maybe you don't do that. I don't know. But anyway, and you don't know where it came from and you don't care. You just want it out of the way. All right. He's talking about that's how inconsequential the human race is with regards to God, is if you're going to compare the two of them in power. All the nations are like fine dust. They're just dust. That's all they are. Then he goes on and says this, even Lebanon is not enough to burn. Now, Lebanon is where the big trees were. Cedars of Lebanon were great big trees. If you want to think about them, think about them with regards to the redwoods on the west coast. They're kind of like those trees, massive trees. They cut them very carefully because they don't grow very fast. You can't replace them. And so you have these massive trees out there. So if we want to move the metaphor or the picture to our own, our own knowledge, go to California and cut down the redwood forests. All of them. Stack them up. And then take all those cows that certain people are, are so happy to, or so desirous of getting rid of. And let's bring them all there, all the cattle that are in California, and put them on top of the pile. And make an offering to our God. And he says, for the God who spans a universe which makes the earth disappear, it doesn't make any difference. From the perspective of he's not impressed. That's the point here. And he's going to finish up by saying this. Not that he doesn't care about the human race or he doesn't care about people. But he says what happens on this earth absolutely does not affect God in the slightest. As he says, the whole thing is meaningless. Now, he's not saying that human beings are meaningless to him. What he's saying is it's, it's very much like the beginning of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and imagine an empty thing? They're going to, they have assembled themselves against God and against his anointed. And he goes on that in the middle of that psalm to say this. And he who sits in heaven laughs. This is hilarious. The human race is going to rebel against me. They're going to get everything together. And this little tiny planet in a massive universe, and they're going to get their virus together and try to somehow affect, infect God. Now, he's trying to remind them of something for a reason here. Because they're a group of people that have been oppressed by that point. Whether you're thinking about the oppression that takes place under Manasseh, when Isaiah was actually speaking, or the oppression that happened to the people of God as they went into the Babylonian captivity, it doesn't matter. They have powerful people interfering with their way of life. And he's trying to remind them that that may happen to you, but in the great plan, it is not significant. And if you're going to hear what he has to say, you have to get that. You have to get some kind of a concept of the greatness of our God. That's one of the reasons that we start at the beginning of our time with students to give them a course on what the Bible teaches that God is like. This is our God. Because you need to have your brain expanded and blown up into trying to grapple with the reality of who he is in his greatness. Now, what else does he go on to say? In light of the greatness of God, we view the littleness of men. And so he asked this question, to whom then will you liken God? Now, at that point, he is not asking about what your idol is. He's saying, how are you picturing God? What kind of a, a vision do you have 
when you think of the eternal God, he's, he's talking to Israel because their vision is way too low. Or what likeness will you compare with him? It's the same thought there. And then he talks about idol, idol because they're not idol worshippers at that point. In Babylonian captivity, they got rid of their idols. One thing about it, they would not be idol worshippers again. That was dealt with. But he says, the idol worshippers that are around you, what do they do? He says, now, you're doing the same thing in your brain that they're doing with their, their physical idols. He says, what do they do? And listen to the number of people it takes to make a god. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, goldsmith plates it with gold, silversmith fashions it with chains. So there's one who designs it and four, three people who make it. So this god is dependent on four people in the picture. All right? He's dependent for his existence on four people. Now you may have, he says, uh, you may be in a situation where you can't afford the gold and the silver. So what do you do if you're in that place? You just reduce your god. So you just get a non-rotting tree. But you still need somebody else to carve it out for you. They make it for you. You can't even design it and, and carry it out yourself. And then it's, it's kind of a mocking word. But we're going to go into this later on more in the book of Isaiah. But it says this. And he makes a, an idol which you can stand up that won't totter. You know, Because if it totters and falls over, well, then you've got, you got a real problem if your God keeps falling over. All right? It, it, he's mocking it, but he's trying to get through. But what he's speaking to is Israel. He's not speaking at this point to the idol. He's not going to continue with the mockery of the idol worship. But what he's going to say is, what is wrong with you that instead of listening to what God has said in his word concerning who he is and what he's like, you've created your own God. You have a mental picture which is short of the mark, and you're willing to allow that to dominate your thinking. He's trying to get their attention. All right, so he goes on. Your, your world is way too small. Not only that, but you've lost track of the fact that the Word of God has told you exactly what God is doing. Now, this seems to change the thought. But remember, the, the first part was just about the fact that to God, He is so great that this earth really doesn't have any particular meaning aside from what He has chosen to make it. We don't force anything out of God. God has set His love on certain people, and that's a wonderful thing. He'll set it on them for all eternity. But that was a sovereign choice of His, and not because there was some necessity that, that this earth drives Him to perform. All right, so back to the, the passage. He then begins to ask questions. Do you not know, this is verse 21, have you not heard, has it not been declared to you from the beginning as he's talking about the word of God there. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth, he who sits on the circle of the earth, or he who sits above the circle of the earth, and it's a, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, again, just using a, a picture there, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. And then he speaks about this. He, he's involved in this world. He reduces rulers to nothing. Well, that's very important to those people because both in Manasseh's day and in the other day, where do people look for deliverance when things are going wrong? It's the same thing. It, it comes up in every country. You look for a leader to step in there. 
Some great man who's going to stand up and who's going to do the right thing and he's going to lead us into good times. In the United States, it's all about who's going to be the president, who's going to do the right thing and take us the right direction. And no matter what your outlook is about politics, you're all going to, everybody's going to have somebody out there. This is what they were looking for. I'm, I'm sure that there were people in Manasseh's day who remembered Hezekiah and the kind of man he was and just wished that couldn't it happen that a, another king could come to lead them. And God's going to say, listen, you're looking the wrong direction. In, the, in that captivity, they could have been thinking that maybe somebody would come up. Maybe a Joshua would arise among the Jewish people that would be able to somehow get them out of there, lead them out of this place. Maybe a Moses. God says this, He reduces rulers to nothing. The rulers of this earth don't count. He says every culture, this is part of the all flesh is grass. Every culture on the face of the earth deteriorates and disappears. The Assyrians that were there in Hezekiah's day weren't there. They were replaced by the Babylonians by the time there was a captivity. He is going to discuss how the Babylonians will be replaced by the Persians and the Persians will overthrow them. Because of that, Israel will go home and the Persians will be overthrown by Greeks and the Greeks will be overthrown by Romans and the Roman, you can go and I can go to Rome today and see the wreck that used to be Rome and you can travel over to Athens and see the wreck that used to be Greece. And you can go all over the world and see what? Ah, oh, let's see the ruins of the great empires. All right. New city was found in Cambodia, I think it was yesterday or last week that they announced on Fox News. Okay, they're going they found in the jungle the ruins of another place. A kingdom that was there, a city that ruled over the region once upon a time and he says this, scarcely has any ruler ever gotten a hold and God blows on him and he's out of the picture. There is no reason to trust in government to save you and make your, deliver you from your needy situation. That's what he's saying to these people. Don't look that way. Don't you know that? That God's in control of it. And it won't work. Because God's in control, He is not going to allow government to do that. Verse 25, so he comes back to it. Now God speaks, To whom then will you liken me, that I should be as equal? And God takes him on a trip. He says, Lift up your eyes. This is interesting because it's he's getting at a point here that's he's leaning to, and this is one of the things we we have a little bit of trouble here. Um, if you read that, it's very similar to another passage. It, it carries the same wording. Remember, Abraham one day was asking, "How can I know that you'll do something? How can I know that you will give me this land?" And he says, "He took him out." Lift up your eyes. Look at those stars. That's very important to this passage. Lift up your eyes and look at the stars. What had God used those stars for? Those stars were given to Abraham. He says, look at those stars. That's how your descendants are going to be. Abraham, many, many years. It's 2000 about when, when Abraham receives his promise. It is 586 when they go into captivity. It's about 536. So you measure the time between those two. But way back there, God had made a promise because God has a plan, remember. And when God makes a promise, 
The Word of God stands forever. The Egyptians come and go. The Assyrians come and go. All those kingdoms come and go. All the rest is going to come and go. But the Word of my God is going to stand forever. Now let's go outside and look at the stars. That's what he's saying to them. <laughs> That's something. Hey, and you know, God can do that for us too. Go outside, look at the stars. They're the same stars that Abraham looked at. You know, we live at the same parallel. You can look out there. That's the same sky he saw. They're still there. And that's what he's going to go on and say. All right. Lift up your eyes. See who created these stars. They know who created the stars. How do they know who created the stars? Because God told them. He told them in his word where who created them. He made them. We won't go back to that passage. Okay. The one who leads the forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness and calls all the stars by name, every single one of them, and there's a lot of them out there. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. They're all right there. Abraham took a look at those stars. If you can count them, that's how your descendants are going to be. Now that, this leads up to the next point, all right? Because now Israel is going to speak. What are we going to do about all this that he said about God? Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. All they're saying is we're in captivity. He's, he's projecting it way out to the captivity. And God has deserted us. That's the way you would have felt if you would have been out there. They sinned against God. And whether you're thinking about what happened in Manasseh's day or whether you're thinking about the captivity, that's the way you would have felt. You stepped apart from the will of God. It said what was going to happen. It has happened. And here you are and you've been rotting away for a number of years out there. And what would be the tendency of the heart to think that God has forgotten me? I know that's true because I've talked to enough people who had troubles for two weeks and they thought God had deserted them. They could have had troubles for a year and thought that God had deserted them. These people have been out there for a long time. Now God is coming and He's asking this question. Why do you say that? And why is He rebuking them? Because all flesh is grass. And all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers and the flower fades. But the Word of our God stands forever. They had to get that point. God has not forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. That's what he's saying to them. God hasn't forgotten you. He had a plan. And he said that certain things were going to take place, and they will take place. Now, then he's going to go to another point. Let's keep moving here. It's a long way through this passage. Anyway, here we go. Do you not know? Right? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Why does he say that? Because they hadn't heard. He says that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, and here's a great passage, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Show of hands, who's tired tonight? The whole world's tired. Right? The whole world is tired. I was told one time, no, don't ever go to a doctor and tell him you've got your problem is you're tired. He said, tired is tired's the condition of the human race. It's not a symptom of anything. That must mean you're alive if you're tired. If you stop being tired, you must be dead. All right? 
Why? Because we put energy out. We keep putting energy out and we keep meeting resistance, right? You've met resistance. I've met resistance. Things haven't gone the way you wanted them to go. How many projects could you think are represented in this room that were started that people finally said, you know what, forget it. I just don't have the energy to do that. Great thought, poor performance, can't, can't follow it through. Great plans, big plans, ideas that could have, but you kept hitting headwinds. And as the headwinds kept knocking you down, you finally said, forget it. You tried to help somebody out, and the more you tried to help them out, the worse things got. And you finally said, ah, let them take care of it themselves. It's for that reason God says something to them. Listen, I am God. I'm not one of you. That's why He's been through all this. I am not one of you. And I don't get tired. How about that? Is that, is that a wonderful thought? That's to me is a wonderful thought. God doesn't get tired. That His plans don't depend on my energy. They depend on His energy. And back at the very beginning, He made a promise to Abraham, and their condition is not going to alter His promise to Abraham, because that's the kind of God that He is. But that's not the only promise He made. The reason they're in captivity is because they disobeyed God, and he told them through Moses back here at about 1400. He says, listen, you've got before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. You've got a choice here to make. I'm putting the law of God, and I'm going to put you in that land. And if you walk into that, and you walk and serve God, I will bless you like nobody's ever been blessed. But if you step aside from the will of God, if you reject the purpose of God and you reject the goodness of God towards you, you're going to be cursed like nobody's ever been cursed. And you'll finally get thrown out of the land. That's happened. And they could sit there and say, oh, we're, we've messed up and we've sinned and there's God forgotten about it. But that's not all he said. When Moses finished saying that, he said something else because God made a promise to Abraham. He said this. And when all those things have come upon you, it's a tremendous passage, Deuteronomy chapter 30. When all those things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, and you call out to me from that land, I will come and get you. And he said there's going to be those who will be delivered. Why? Because God has a plan. He started back there. And the word of our God is not even altered by the failure of human beings to follow it. So this is a tremendous chapter. Now, what are you going to do about all that? Uh, you know, what, what, what should they do in light of all that? All right. Verse 29 says he gives strength to the weary. Who's that? That's us. Why? Because all flesh is grass, right? And all of it is wearing out. If you're not tired tonight, you will be. All right? Because it's all grass. It's all withering. It's all... Who needs that strength? We all need that strength, right? He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. And he, he talks about young people full of energy. They're still going to stumble. They're still going to stumble. All right, but then he says in... 
in verse 31. This is where that was the introduction. Now we get to the point. All right, here it is. Yet those that wait on the Lord are going to gain a new kind of strength. They're going to be renewed. And the thought with being renewed here is that God is going to give to people who wait on Him a different kind of strength. Because the strength, which is strength of flesh, that's our natural strength, will run out. But I am going to give to them a strength. And he says three things are going to happen. Three, he uses three pictures. And this is a very strange passage. At least I think it's a strange passage because it seems so anticlimactic, but it's very important. Because he says this, they will do what? They will mount up with wings like eagles. All right. That's like the hawks that are running around here. Or not running around here. They're flying around here. All right. And you see them. They're, they're mostly red-tailed hawks as you see around here. The buzzards, they, they do the same thing. But there they are. And you watch them. And they don't flap very much. Unless crows are chasing them, they're just going to kind of just drift around. Why? Because if they put their wings out there, air currents, once they get up there, air currents are moving around and they just drift through them and it lifts them up. And all they do is go for hours without ever flapping wings. You will mount up with wings like eagles. That's what he's talking about. Wings where you just put them out there and you're lifted. That's tremendous. We think that's a great, that's the height. That's where we want to be, right? Okay, but that's not where he finishes. They will run and not get tired. All right? They're going to run. Well, there is running and you don't have the natural, you know, I've ran, run enough in my life that, you know, that after a while you want to stop. Why? Because you just run out of juice. You just, just that's it. Because you're expending it. All right? The word that he used there is just the natural word for what happens when you run and you finally run out of juice and have to stop. But he says this group of people is going to run and it's going to keep on going. But he gets down to what he considers the height. The Hebrew way of putting it puts the last thing. This should be the height. And here's the height. And they will walk and they won't faint. I just faint here, and it's a different kind of fatigue. And I don't really like the way New American Standard puts it because it, it, it misses the point here. Right, I think it, it distracts from what it is. They walked in. Everybody had to walk. You can't catch the bus in that day. You get from place to place by walking. Very few people had transportation where you got on something and rode from place to place. Everywhere you go, and if you've ever been to the Middle East, you, you know that there are very few trees to get under. There's very little shade. And you get out there and walk. It doesn't take a lot of energy to walk. You can walk all day, pretty much. Most people, if they're not in really bad shape, they can get up there and just keep walking. Go to the beach sometime. Just walk. And you can walk until you run out of beach to walk on. But there you're sitting there and you've got a sun beating down on you. And the idea here is not that you run out of energy like when you run and you're putting out energy and you finally, I can't keep doing that and you have to get renewed. It's just the thought that the sun and the pressures and the heat finally get to you and you just, you start getting faint in the head. I don't know if you've ever been there. Faint in the head because of heat, heat fatigue. And you get to the point where you can't take it anymore and you collapse. He says that when I give this new kind of strength, they're going to be able to keep on walking. Now, that's important because of what he says. 
what is it that a person has to do? What, what will bring an individual to that, that place where he can live like that? And he says, he's waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. What does that mean? Right? This is one I want to take a little bit of time with because uh, we use the word a lot in Christianity. Let's, let's wait for the Lord, wait, wait on the Lord. I'm not sure we do know what we mean by it. Okay, let me just let me talk real quickly because we don't have a lot of time, but I want to I want to think about what does it mean to wait on the Lord? All right. The word has first of all, we'll put it this way, it's not the order I've got it on the page, but the first point is this the word can be translated hope. To wait on the Lord, let me well, let me back up. I've missed one point about better make here. Wait on the Lord is not a passive position. This isn't like we go to a monastery and we wait on the Lord and pray all day. Now, a person might go there and there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong going and praying. All I'm saying is that's not what he has in mind here because the people who wait also run and walk and fly. All right? So the waiting here is not that I just get get fired up and then can go. He's talking about an attitude of heart that a person adopts. Okay? This is an attitude of heart that I adopt. And I have it continuously in my experience. There's no question about the fact that time alone with the Lord in the Word and in prayer brings my mentality into focus on this. But the thought that the writer has is that a person has this focus. It is a focus, not just a one-time event. That makes sense. Now, what is that focus? The first thing it has to do with is hope. Waiting on the Lord has to do with the concept of hope. It can, it can be translated to expect or to anticipate and to anticipate with eagerness. All right. So in one sense, it has to do with the, with the thought of hope. The, the possibility, and remember in Christianity, hope means God has promised certain things about the future and I am confident that those things are so and I am looking for them to be fulfilled. That's important because it takes me out of my own realm and I'm moving to something out there. It's different than faith. We saw that last week, or last week, last year, as we were going through Hebrews. We thought about the fact that the writer of Hebrews wants those people, he says in chapter 6, to be like those, to imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. That this hope that's set before you, you might have, you might live according to that hope that's set before you. A hope is a confidence that I have of what's coming. What would be a hope? I live today, we all live as Christians in a hope of a resurrection. I am not resurrected yet. I have not seen anyone resurrected yet. I have a testimony of Jesus Christ being resurrected, but nobody else has had that yet. And yet I live confident that that will take place. And again, this should be true for all of us. So I'm not trying to brag or anything. But we organize our lives in light of the fact that that's a reality out there. When I hear God say that there is a resurrection and I believe in that resurrection in order my life along that line, that's the beginning of waiting on the Lord. That's a, that's a form of waiting on the Lord. It has to do with structuring my life in accordance with that anticipation we have. We have an anticipation that the Lord will return. He said he, when I'm going to, He's going to go this way, He will return the same way. That could happen before we finish tonight. But it may not. I don't know. It hasn't happened yet. It's only going to happen one time. All right? 
It's not as if we can... But we have that hope. He who has that hope in himself purifies himself. He takes action. And that living with respect to hope is part of the idea of wait. But it has another thought. It has to do with patience. The word has to do with... I waited patiently for the Lord, and he heard me. And the idea there, again, is not of me going to a place and just praying until God hears me. The idea is that I lived, I heard what he said in his word, I structured my life around that, and then I waited for him, I I anticipated him actually acting in my life with respect to what he said. And so I lived my life with patience. The patience here is that I do what God tells me to do patiently. And I keep on going against the tide and against the bumps and bruises. Right? So that we actually carry out the purpose of God. So it's it's first all hope, but it also has to do with this concept of living patiently. Living under control, not being rattled by the the irregularities of life and what seems to be not lining up with what God says. If you want to see a deeper picture of that, and I don't think I'm going to get there, but to look at it tonight, Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. All right, and then he goes on to say what? Trust in the Lord and do good. That's a beautiful past. Trust in the Lord, but do good in the middle of a time when the evildoers look like they're in control. Just do good. Dwell in the land. Just live there. Cultivate. Be faithful. Cultivate faithfulness. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He'll bring it to pass. Delight yourself. This is in the light of a situation in which evildoers are threatening and they're coming in against you. And that's what we're talking about, patience. Doing the right thing, even though I'm under that kind of duress, because I have waited on the Lord. I put my confidence out there. And, of course, there's the third aspect of it that has to be put into the concept of of that, and that's the concept of faith, because if that's going to happen, I am going to have to receive from God what's necessary for today, because faith has to do with where I actually live. If I am going to pray... For people who despitefully use me, all right? right? If I'm going to rejoice, as it says, when people are saying things about me, uttering all manner of evil against me falsely on his account, if I'm going to rejoice in that situation, I am going to have to receive from the Lord a strength to do it. All right? And that's where the faith element comes in. So the waiting on the Lord has to do with this hope that a person has. It has to do with the patience that they express in living. These are all aspects of it. It has to do with the fact that they have determined they are going to live by faith along the way. And the promise of God is if I will live that way, His purpose, that big I I then enter into the big purpose of God. Because we're all living either in the big purpose of God or we're opposing the big purpose of God. So if I'm going to wait on the Lord, then I enter into that purpose, and then I know that things are going to work, and God begins to give strength. That's what he promises. He'll renew that person, the person who determines this, who sets themselves along those lines. He renews them and gives them a capacity, a strength, to be able to live in a way which is totally unexplainable. 
Not so much in the fact that they can fly or they can run, but they can keep on plugging along in life no matter what happens and not ever fall over. It's a big promise. It's a wonderful promise. Why? Why will that happen? Because the word of our God stands forever. Psalm 37 says that when you finish waiting on the Lord, you know what the end is? Those who wait on the Lord, they will inherit the land. Psalm 37 is the place where it gets the, where the beatitude comes from. When we're told, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who have humbled themselves, who have taken that position, who have come to that place. And that meekness goes right along with this idea of waiting. Who have taken that position, they will inherit the earth. It will finally be theirs. Not because they conquer it, but because the Lord conquered it, and he's going to give it to them because they're going to live a certain way. Now, this was important for them in Hezekiah's day, or in Manasseh's day, I should say, because they had to commit them. If they're going to respond properly in the day when everything is going the wrong way with Manasseh, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to wait on the Lord, and they could have renewed their strength. It was going to be important in the captivity because not everybody was coming back from the captivity, but there would be those who in that captivity would turn to God and they would wait on the Lord and they would come back to the land and they would experience the blessing God had. But it's important for us too. The principle counts everywhere. Where we are tonight, we have to wait on the Lord. He's given a promise in Jesus Christ. Again, if you're outside of that place, if you've never come to that place where you've committed to him, then you don't, can't begin to know what it means to wait on the Lord. But there is the potential of your life having eternal benefit. Your life having an eternal dimension. You entering into that great plan, which you started way back at the very beginning, and all that we've been talking about was part of. But that plan went on to a place when the Lord was born and lived and died so that tonight there is a gospel to preach. There is a, there's a bigger message to enter into. If you've never entered into that, I just would encourage you to seek out someone to, to, to find out what it's all about because it's, it's important for us. We have to do that in this day. It's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm looking for. The people will come to the place where they wait on the Lord and they get that kind of strength. Not... Not giving their energies to serving God because all flesh is grass. The thing I need to do is line up with God. He doesn't need my energy. He needs my submission. He needs availability so that He can be in me and through me what He wants to be. Because I will wear out. But the Word of our God stands forever. Stands forever. Are you waiting on Him tonight? Do you have that hope tonight? Is your life being structured around that hope? Is your life patient? Is it under control, despite all the crazy things that are happening in the world around us, because you're waiting on Him? Are you sufficient for the things that happen to you every day because you're laying hold of Him because you've waited on the Lord? As you wait, what happens? He renews strength. You mount up with wings like eagles. You run. You won't be weary. You walk, and you will not faint. Now let's pray. Father, we come to you and give you thanks for the power of your word. We thank you that your purpose is forever settled and fixed. 
We thank you tonight for the opportunity for everyone in this room to enter into and we're coming and asking you, uh, speak by your spirit. Don't let anyone slip away. Father, you've spoken to us through your word. Now, enable us to embrace it, receive it, build our lives around it, be those who know the fulfillment of your promise. We come trust you for that and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.